Welcome, ankle biters. You've stumbled on the Firefire's Firefetched Fables, the home of tall tales, old chestnuts, fish stories, and other unassorted yarns. We mostly cater to the youngins here, but you grown-ups can have a listen, too. If you have a mind to, tap on the follow button on your podcast app or find us on the Facebook. In the meantime, turn off the TV, put down the cell phone, get yourself a glass of warm milk, and settle in for some old-time storytelling. Tonight's episode... Chapter 12, The Winter of the Blue Snow. As the weather began to turn cold, Paul felt sure that his bad luck had left him, and he began to make great plans as to how he would regain all the time he had lost. He was quite happy when the thermometer showed a lower mark each succeeding day, and he looked forward with impatience for the snows to begin. When the first snow did come, however, he began to lose his enthusiasm. There was something so strange about the flakes that he was filled with new foreboding as soon as they began to fall. They were a bright blue in color, and once started, they fell unceasingly. That winter has always been remembered by loggers as the winter of the blue snow. So far as history shows, or the oldest man can remember, has there ever been an any other snow of that color? So much of it fell that finally Paul had to let his men down on ropes before they could even find the tops of the tallest trees, and, of course, not much logging could be done. The snow stopped falling at last, and then the weather turned cold. And so cold was it that men afterwards spoke of it as the year of two winters, since it was as cold as two winters put together. It was so cold that the men were worse troubled by snow snakes and the pesky little frostbiters than ever before. Nearly every step they would take out of doors, there would be a snow snake waiting, all coiled up and ready to strike. Once it sank its fangs into a person, he was a goner for sure, for he would soon freeze to death before help could come. The frostbiters were not fatal, but they were really an awful nuisance. It certainly was cold that winter, so cold that men's words froze and dropped to the ground as they were spoken. Johnny Inkslinger had to work out a brand new system for interpreting them before the members of the crew could talk to one another. And a little later, a special frozen word interpreter had to be imported into the camp. As in every camp, the Big Onion camp had a few trouble finders who were always kicking about various things. Paul made all these chronic kickers meet in a special fault-finding conference every day and relieve themselves of all their unpleasant criticisms at the time. Of course, their words froze and dropped to the ground as fast as they were spoken, and so nobody could hear them until after they were thawed out. The fault-finders never troubled themselves to speak mildly. Paul had all of their frozen words gathered up into a big bin, intending to haul such troublesome rubbish far away from the camp and bury it, 
until the ever-efficient Johnny Inkslinger thought of boxing up the most explosive of all the words and selling them for blasting powder. They were very powerful, too, when a charge of them was set off all at once. One good thing which the cold spell did was to cure all the men of the camp of swearing. Dang, nabbit! Whenever a man dropped a cuss word, Paul had it picked up by a special crew for the purpose, labeled with the man's name and stored away. When spring came and the weather began to get warm, each man that had a bale of cuss words saved up for him had to take them all out and listen to them as they thawed. Some wonderful combinations were heard along about that time, and having to sit back and listen to their full winter's cussing all in one bunch was a most satisfactory method of curing the men of the unpleasant habit of swearing, one may be sure. Brimstone Bill was the worst offender in camp this way. Dead that was how he earned his name. But after spring came that year, he was just about the mildest spoken man in seven states. He had cussed so much during the cold winter that several times he had been nearly covered up and smothered by the frozen words and had to be pulled out from under the heap he had made. When spring came and he had to listen to all of his words as they thawed out, ah, there was some real excitement, most assuredly. He was deaf for three weeks afterwards, and he never did fully recover from the dreadful things he had heard. His experience completely cured him of swearing, however, and ever afterwards, whenever he began to feel the old inclination to say words of such a nature, he would relieve his feelings with whistling instead. The weather kept on growing colder and colder, and finally Paul heard a rumor that it had grown so cold that the Pacific Ocean had frozen over. The story seemed so unlikely that he decided to investigate for himself. I'm going to see if it's true what they say about the Pacific being frozen, he explained to his men, and also... I'm so homesick for the sight of some regular old white snow that I'm going to look around a little and see if I can find some. So, followed by the faithful babe, he set out on snowshoes to the westward. He kept on going until he came to the ocean, but not a flake of white snow could he glimpse anywhere. The ice on the Pacific looked pretty solid, and so he struck out across it, always on the lookout for some snow that wasn't blue. He kept on and kept on, but he was far into China before he found any white snow. Proof of this may be found in the fact that nothing but white snow has ever fallen in central China. Is that even true? Paul was so pleased over finding what he was looking for that he loaded Babe with all he could carry and set off for home again. When he finally got back to camp again, his men all held a tremendous celebration. So pleased were they at the sight of the familiar, old-fashioned snow again. Paul gave each of them a white snowball for a Christmas present that year, and most of them carried theirs around in their pockets for many years afterwards as proof that they had spent the winter of the blue snow in Paul's camp. Then, if anyone doubted their word, they would just pull their white snowball out of their pocket and there could be no further doubt about their telling the truth. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. It was while the blue snow was on the ground 
that the snow wassets were nearly exterminated by Paul's men. The snow wasset is unlike any other animal, inasmuch as it hibernates during the summer instead of the winter. When the snow begins to melt as the weather turns warm in the spring, this queer animal grows a pair of strong front legs that end in paws armed with big digging claws. Its color changes to green, and by the time the last snowdrift has melted away, it is denned up, all snug and sound, in a hole which it has dug in the ground. There, all covered with moss and dirt, it sleeps away until winter comes again, when it wakes up as the first snow begins to fall. By the time drifts have begun to deepen, it has shed its legs in green fur and has grown a brand new winter coat. Its new fur is of the purest white and very valuable, but as the animal is thus so colored that it cannot be seen as it wallows about in the snow, it is very seldom ever captured. Ahem, a footnote if I may. The waset moves about only when it has deep snow to travel in, and it gets from place to place by dipping and squirming through the drifts. It soon attains remarkable skill in this method of travel, which enables it to sneak up through the snow under crouching rabbits, skulking foxes, or even wolves, and drag its prey, kicking down below the surface there to be devoured. Indians used to use the Wasset's winter skin in making canoes. Back to the story, there being however. No leg holes in During the, the winter of the blue snow, well however, the Wasset could be easily seen, white against the blue, and Paul's men put in much of their time that winter in hunting the squirming creatures as they played among the blue drifts. Johnny Inkslinger sold many Wasset skins in the spring, and the high price he received for these rare pelts did much toward making up to Paul for the poor cut of timber during that winter. The winter was long, but at last it came to an end. The snow melted off, and the frozen words were thawed out. It was then that Paul Bunyan made a big raft of what logs had been cut and started floating down the river to deliver them. Somehow or other, he and his men got completely lost on the way, and they floated on and on without ever finding where they were. They ran out of food, and they had to live on a diet of frogs' legs for several weeks, when finally, and very strangely, they found themselves right back where they had started. They had floated with the river as it made a perfect circle, and to this day, this exploit of Paul's is known as the Great Circle Drive. It is, in fact, the only circle drive that has ever been made. The circle drive disgusted Paul with the Big Onion River. I'll make no more use of it, he declared. From now on, we'll drag all of our logs to the Mississippi River and make our drives down it, for I'll never send another drive down the Big Onion. And so it was that he cared not a bit when, a few days later, a great tree was accidentally felled into the Big Onion and splashed all the water right out of the river. In the lake's states, Paul had found the trees to be the biggest he had ever seen. They gave him the best chance he had yet of using his big cross-cut saw, and in fact, the trees were so big that ordinary men with ordinary tools could make but little impression on them. That had been discovered when he had sent out 
two monster crews, in addition to the seven Axemen, hoping to make a record cut. The seven Axemen, of course, did their work with their usual ease in spite of the size of the trees, but the two crews got caught in an amusing tangle. They worked hard for a week, each man chopping away for all he was worth, before they discovered that they were all hewing away on different parts of the same tree. So big were these trees that when Paul wanted to see the top of one of them, he had to call out all of his men to help him look. So it was not strange that one day, when one of these great trees fell into the big onion, it splashed all the water out of the riverbed. The water was splashed so far that two settlers established farms in the bed of the stream and had their crops all ready for harvesting before the water finally ran back and washed all their possessions away. Boy, this water's cold. Yeah, and it's deep, too. Paul Bunyan certainly did a wise thing in giving up all thought of trying to make use of this treacherous stream, as one could never tell what it was going to do next. After he started skidding his logs to the Mississippi, his bad luck left him, and he began to get ahead with his logging operations as he had planned and in a greater way than ever before. It was about this time that he invented the round turn, which is still in use, no better one ever having been devised. Turning the great blue ox about had always been a lot of trouble, as Paul had always done in simply by picking up Babe and setting him down again, headed in the other direction. He got tired of doing this so many times every day, and at last he figured out a new method. He taught Babe to walk in small half-circle, so that when he stopped, he was headed back in the opposite direction. This was the round turn, whereby an animal or team turns itself around instead of having to be lifted around, and it was such a sensible way that it is still in use. Brilliant! Nowadays, very few people follow Paul's old method of turning their work animals around. After Paul Bunyan had started using the Mississippi River for floating his logs to the mills, he one time made a mistake. He had received an order for a drive of logs from a big sawmill down near the mouth of the river, below New Orleans. The logs were made into a big raft, and Paul sent a crew of his men along to deliver it to the mill. When they reached their destination, they found the mill owner had changed his mind and that he refused to accept the logs unless the price was made much lower than had been arranged. He, of course, thought that nothing else could be done except what to take what he had offered. Since the logs were where they were, and it would be almost impossible to get them upstream again. Paul was not the man to be cheated in this way, however, and as soon as he received the message from his men, he determined to get the logs back and fool the rascally mill owner. He thought over the matter for a while, and then went out to where Babe and Bessie were feeding. He gave each of them a hogshead or two of salt, which they gulped down greedily, and then he led them away to the upper waters of the river. The salt which they had swallowed had made the two animals very thirsty indeed, and by the time they reached the banks of the Mississippi, they were eager for a long drink. Paul grinned as he turned them loose and let them begin to quench their thirst. They stood out in the water and drank and drank and drank. So much did they swallow, and so fast did they suck up the water that the current of the river began flowing back upstream to where they were. 
They kept on drinking faster than ever, so thirsty were they, and together with the great blue ox and the yaller cow, drank so much that finally the big log raft floated back upstream on the current that ran backwards up the river. Thus Paul got back his logs, and nothing was lost by the transaction excepting a few hogs' head of salt. The little chore boy had meanwhile been promoted from the grindstone and given the job of cutting the firewood for the cook shanty. He did his work so slowly, though, that at last Paul sent him back to his former work and rigged up a mechanical firewood saw to take the youngster's place. His new invention ran perfectly, and the speed with which it worked fascinated Paul so greatly that he was nearly buried in the sawdust from it when Ole found him and aroused him to save himself from being smothered. It was a near escape, and Paul always guarded against such a thing happening again whenever the saw was running. It was in Wisconsin that the last of the splinter cats was caught and killed. These great animals used to be quite common in the big woods, until Paul Bunyan grew irritated over the amount of good timber they destroyed and began to exterminate them. The splinter cat was especially fond of honey and wild bees, hives of which were frequently found in the hollow trees in the woods. Its method of finding its favorite food was simple but very destructive, and for that reason the great logger's anger fell upon it. The splinter cat was a very queer-looking animal with long, strong legs and with claws on its feet to aid in climbing trees. Its legs were built like coiled steel springs, and so powerful were they that they hurled the creature tremendously hard whenever it made a leap. Its most peculiar feature, though, was its head, which was exceedingly heavy and hard, just like the head of a battering ram. When it became hungry, the splinter cat would climb into a tall tree, and from this vantage point it would leap as strongly as it could against the trunk of another tree nearby, hitting the tree with its hard head and crashing against it with such force that the trunk would be shattered into splinters. Thus it got its name of Splinter Cat. It would continue shattering trees in this manner until by chance and the process of elimination, it finally found a bee tree in its smashing course. Bursting this open in its peculiar way, it would feed on the bees and honey until satisfied, and then hide away for a long nap. Footnote. Despite Paul's warfare on the species, now and then evidence is discovered to show that the splinter cat is still occasionally creating destruction among the forests. Appalling waste has been wrought by this animal, but such is the present-day ignorance of its habits that its work, in the shape of erect forest, has usually been ascribed to wind. The splinter cat worked night. only at night and was especially active during heavy storms. For that reason, it was seldom seen. But often, when a hard wind was blowing, the loggers used to hear the crashing and crackling of trees in the forest that told of the splinter cat making its rounds. It destroyed so much good timber in its search for food, often laying waste through great stretches of forest during a single stormy night, that Paul decided to rid the woods of all the splinter cats. He taught Elmer to lie in wait for them among the trees at night, following the crashing sounds they made until he caught one of them 
on the ground just after it had splintered a tree. The poor animals were always a little dazed for a few minutes after smashing a tree trunk into bits with their heads, as anyone can easily understand, and it was at this helpless stage that Elmer would pounce upon them and destroy them. So expert did the great Moose Terrier become in his splinter cat hunting that it was not very long before they were about done away with, and finally Paul himself killed the last one after his dog had dragged it into camp, still alive. Paul Bunyan's operations in the Lake States became more and more widespread, and each year his crews grew larger and larger and cut more timber than the year before. Finally, after the biggest year he had ever known, Paul floated his great drive of logs to the mills. There were so many logs in this drive that they formed a big jam across the Mississippi River and stopped the flow of water for almost two weeks. The jam was at last broken and the logs delivered without any further trouble. After his great drive, Paul Bunyan's work in the Lake States was done. For this drive had included nearly the last of the good timber to be found in all that section of the country. Only small patches were left here and there, and the great logger was already making plans for locating in an entirely new part of the country. His next move was to the Pacific coast, but before he made definite arrangements for starting on this new migration westward, his affairs in the Big Onion camp had to be straightened up, his men paid off, and his various possessions there packed for carrying away. Also. There was the big celebration to be held before the breakup of the camp, in celebration of the completion of the most successful season of logging work that had ever been known. Well, all right, that's the end of chapter 12. There's only a few more chapters of this telling of Paul Bunyan and his great blue ox, and then we'll be on to a brand new story on Far Far's Far-Fetched Fables. Sweet dreams, you little tater tots! Read it again, Fafa.